Welcome to the balance sheet where you rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. Climate change is happening and that's not up for debate. What's still undecided is how the world is going to tackle climate change. One big piece of the puzzle is how and who is going to pay for, for this. Our guest today will tell us more about climate finance. First, we have Baisa Naran. Baisa is the global climate finance tracking lead with the Climate Policy Initiative. So welcome, Baisa. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Very happy to be in the webinar today. Also joining us is Daniel Duma, who is a research fellow at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Daniel is lead of the research program in finance for sustainable development. So welcome, Daniel. Thanks so much, Conrad. Thanks for inviting me. Baisa, maybe if we could start with you and if you tell us a bit about the landscape of climate finance and actually what is climate finance? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So. Um, we should start with the Paris Agreement that was signed by different all countries in 2015. Um, so the three main goals of Paris Agreement is threefold. Um, one is long-term goals on climate change mitigation. And the second one is adaptation. And the third one is finance. <clears throat> now, all of these goals work together with uh, one goal to limit um, the increase in the global average temperatures to well below two degrees um, and, with, and pursue the efforts to limit um, the increase to 1.5 degrees. <clears throat> now, finance is a very important pillar in achieving Paris Agreement objectives because it's basically means of implementing Paris Agreement. Um, and there are two considerations when we talk about finance. So one is stipulated in um, two point, Article 2.1c of the agreement, which states all finance flows should be compatible with low carbon development and climate resilient pathways. And then the second consideration is um, more related to the principle of Paris Agreement, which states um, common but differentiated responsibilities of parties. So which means that there is a duty, um, while there's a duty on all countries to pursue uh, climate action, there are, um, you know, there are different circumstances of different national um, development pathways. So uh, here, Article 9 of Paris Agreement states that developed countries should provide financial resources to um, assist developing countries' parties uh, to both <clears throat> mitigation and adaptation activities. So these are very technical matters, but um, very important to keep in mind when we talk about climate finance. Now, um, there is no one definition of climate finance, um, that, that which makes this discussion a bit complicated. Um, but with, within CPI, Climate Policy Initiative, what we do is we adhere to the UNFCCC definitions. Uh, which states that climate finance aims at reducing emissions and enhancing sinks of greenhouse gases and, and aims at reducing the vulnerability of and maintaining and increasing the resilience of human um, and ecological systems to negative climate change um, impacts. So again, like very technical. Um, 
<clears throat> but what we try to do within climate policy initiative with the global landscape of climate finance is to understand what are the primary investment going to climate mitigation and adaptation activities. So it really means that we want to see the real economy activities rather than sort of stock market, financial market initiatives. So what this helps us is to see uh, whether finance is going to uh, the activities that actually reduce emissions um, and increase resilience to changing climate change, uh, climate um, activities. <clears throat> so the most recent um, uh, trends show that climate finance surpassed its first trillion, uh, which is great news. Um, and in the last sort of 10 years um, that we've been tracking climate finance, it's been hovering around sort of 300, 500 billion. But in 2021, we see that climate finance increased uh, and, and surpassed the first trillion. Um, so maybe um, I'll stop here, Conrad. Yeah, so this um, chart that you show about climate finance reaching that first trillion, um, how is that enough in terms of the amount of capital that's needed for tackling climate change? And also a reminder to viewers, if you've got any questions, please put them in the chats or comments. So the question is, is this enough uh, yeah. that we're sp yeah, are spending enough? No, I think, um, you know, last year when we updated our numbers at first trillion, that was like a big splash. It was a very good news and it's an indication that this transition climate mitigation adaptation activities are becoming mainstream and, and it's just going to go upwards from here. But then if we compare it um, to what is needed, um, I, I think you've previewed this slide, the reality looks very stark. Um, and in an ideal world, we should be already deploying at least three to four trillion. And then by 2030, the minimum amount of climate finance should be around six trillion a year. And as you can see, there's just a, a huge gap in climate investment, um, which is a very challenging uh, issue. But then with each year of delay, so as long as we don't hit that three to four or five trillion a year, the climate investment gap is just going to increase every year. Um, yeah, but I think what I like to think about this topic is that it's, it's you know, it, it is a very daunting, difficult challenge, but um, it's less of an issue of find, trying to find new money, trying to find, you know, additional cash from somewhere. It's, it's probably more around redirecting our day-to-day -day finance. So like redirecting finance from fossil fuels to um, um, climate mitigation adaptation activities. So that's something to, to keep in mind. And I think this slide here is just a perfect depiction of the problem with climate finance is that it's it's not about, you know, oh, we don't have money. It's about identifying our priorities, what we're spending on, you know, what is what is the things that we are putting as a priority and urgency on. So just to give an example, like um, there was an interesting study that uh, just governments alone, um, uh, they spend about 2.2 trillion a year on, on military activities. Um, and the other example is that we had uh, COVID, right, like a couple of years ago, and a lot of countries have put together different um, um, 
COVID emergency fiscal measures, packages, and then in just one year, it easily summed up to 12 trillion. So what this really means is that if we really sense the urgency and if we know that this is an urgent action to do, we are able to um, you know, find, find the money, basically. And then compared to what is needed, right? Like if we really think about like even the sort of average to high ranges, it's, it's still um, less than what we spend on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then another example is that obviously the, the fossil fuel subsidies that we spend, which is around 7 trillion a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the next slide, it's just also helps us put things into perspective that um, spending um, on climate action is actually much cheaper in the long run. Um, so there was an interesting study by the NGFS just really looking into um, what would be how much it would cost us socioeconomically if we don't spend this money um, um, now. And then the order of magnitude of the costs um, is is very big. It, it's um, two thousand three hundred and twenty eight trillion um, dollars um, compared to two hundred and sixty six trillion that we'd spend um, by twenty fifty. Um, and and this cost of inaction refers to things like um, um, <clears throat> so on one hand um, obviously like uh, loss food loss um, and um, you know stranded assets and all the sort of damages that can that we need to spend to recover um, and, and such but then, Another complication is that it doesn't take into account even more complicated issues such as, you know, migration or displacement of people. So these things are very difficult to cost in socioeconomic terms. Um, So this is why making um, investment now and taking swift action on climate um, really makes socioeconomic sense in the long term. Yeah, and Paisa, you've got an interesting slide over here, which is about where is the money going or where's the money coming from? Can you explain a bit about what this slide uh, entails? Um, sure. So um, um, this graphic shows how and where sort of climate finance is mostly attracted to. And it's been a trend for a really long time that most climate finance is concentrated in three main regions. So one is North America, the other one is Western Europe, and the third one is East Asia and Pacific, primarily dominated by China. Um, and the, um, the main thing is that these economies have been um, very much investing heavily in their domestic policies to support clean energy um, and clean transport sectors. So whether it's, it's related to um, um, renewable energy sector, uh, or whether it's related to electric vehicle markets. So the policies to support them has been going on for a really long time. And that in turn enabled cost reduction of uh, a lot of the different technologies. So like we've heard over and over and, and seen how, for example, solar PV market costs has been going swiftly down over the last 10 years. And it's all because there were like these long-term policy supports um, um, by, by various governments in these regions. But then when we look into um, the other markets where we have majority of the emerging markets and developed economies, we see that finance is much, much uh, less 
And um, while still growing, you know, I don't like to say that all developing economies are, you know, same. There are differences, huge differences between those different um, developed economies. And they're still catching up and there still needs to go through this transition and catch up with also uh, developing their own national priorities and policies. And then one um, swift um, stark difference we see here, as you can see in the graph, is the sub-Saharan Africa market. So as you can see, the private market going into sub-Saharan Africa is very, very low compared to, for example, Latin American, Caribbean or, or South Asia. So we see that less than 20% of climate finance in that region is, is private finance. And it's very, the region is very heavily dependent on international climate finance, international development aid, and that sort of um, uh, funds. This is a good chance to uh, maybe bring it over to Daniel, who uh, has done quite a bit of work looking at Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. So Daniel, what's your uh, experience been in terms of climate finance in those regions? Thanks so much, uh, uh, Conrad. Um, maybe before I start, uh, I should stay, say a few words about the CIA. Uh, maybe not everyone uh, knows us. So the, the Stockholm Environment Institute is an international nonprofit uh, research and policy organization that tackles the environment and development challenges. It employs about 350 researchers in eight offices around the world, in addition to the headquarters in Stockholm, where, I, where I'm also based. Uh, within SCI, I lead a research program called Finance for Sustainable Development. And uh, what we try to do here is to approach the, the, the problem from the other end compared to, to, to BISA, for example. We look at the demand side of, of, of finance, specifically in developing countries. Um, and concretely, what we try to do is analyze the, let's say, the, the, the micro level investment decision at the firm level and try to uncover how uh, projects can generate sustainability value as well as uh, economic value. Um, by engaging with, with, with project developers, with lenders, with entrepreneurs and other project level stakeholders, we, we generate these micro insights on the enabling conditions for, for financing sustainable businesses. And uh, also, of course, we focus a lot on, on, on blended, blended finance interventions from um, development finance institutions and uh, multilateral development banks. The, the, the first, let's say, where, where we started, the first research project, which is a multi-year project, was on risk mitigation and finance for renewable energy, utility-scale renewable energy in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and the reason why we chose this is that the renewable energy sector accounts for the largest share of, of climate finance, both in terms of need and actual commitments. And I think if you look in, in BISA's numbers, you will see um, almost 40% of all climate finance goes to renewable energy generation. Um, and the reason we chose Sub-Saharan Africa is also relatively straightforward. It's the region with the, with the greatest need for additional energy to meet the demands of its, its growing economies and, and, and populations. Um, just for illustration, the average power consumption per capita in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, per year is somewhere around 200 kilowatt hours compared to an average of 6,000 
kilowatt kilowatt hours in in Europe. So in any imaginable circumstance, you you you, you would see this consumption increase. Um, at the same time, uh, the region only attracted 1.5% of global investments in, in renewables uh, in 2021, for example, but things are similar uh, in other years, despite accounting for 15% of the global population. Um, and financed for, for, for finance to be able to flow, especially in the case of renewables, it needs viable projects. And uh, uh, I'll give you a, a, an illustration. In uh, an estimate from the International Energy Agency uh, for its sustainable uh, Africa scenario, Sub-Saharan Africa would need uh, 130 gigawatts installed by, by 2030 uh, to meet its goals. And at the average project size of the last years that we calculated, this would amount to more than one project being commissioned every day from today until 2030. In this context, in 2023, only eight projects reached financial close in all of Africa, not just Sub-Saharan Africa. So this is uh, this is the the context in which we 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 set up and implemented our research project. Uh, what we did is take the regions of Africa. We looked at projects that worked. And we tried to understand by talking to the people who structure them, who who were the the the, the developers, the, the 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 lenders, the buyers of energy, and uh, get them to explain to us what their approach to risk was and how did they get to uh, secure financial close in difficult circumstances. Um, and. What we we realized, and here again, uh, our findings confirm what what uh, Baisa was saying. Finance is not the major bottleneck for renewable energy growth in in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's the basic conditions required for the the development of renewable energy projects: regulation, interconnection, investor protection, payment security, currency access, even energy demand. These are in such short supply that the few credible projects that that exist uh, don't don't even get to the point. So few of them actually get to the point of seeking finance. Uh, the, the the few projects that do uh, become the object of competition. There are lenders literally fighting for them, um, you know, because they represent viable opportunities to deploy the the capital. So um, I I tend to agree with 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 Baisa, uh, especially in in uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, creating the conditions for projects to develop and attract finance is what the the, the what's at stake and what should be the goal of of, of uh, uh, global policy at uh, at this time. That's really interesting because. Uh... You know, the, those graphs that we saw before, this big gap, and what you mentioned, Paisa, that it's not the finance, that's the bottleneck. We actually have a couple of questions, and I, I hope that people will start asking questions based on what you mentioned, because that's kind of counterintuitive when we see, you know, especially here in the developed world where we have to, a portion of my energy bills, for example, goes to renewable, whether I use renewable or not. But here we have a few questions here. So the first one, 
Um, so Kartik asks, how is investments audited so that we know that on the ground the, uh, there is actually a return but also a, there's progress in climate change? How do these projects get uh, measured? Yeah, I can take that question. Yes, please. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And um, just on that, so currently there's no such international framework to audit climate finance. So it's all based on the reporting done by the sort of different parties themselves, whether it's um, developed develop country governments, whether it's, um, you know, um, philanthropies. And for private sectors, there is not even any requirement right now for them to disclose any investment related to, to climate finance. Even if we see there's a huge boom in sort of responsible investment as ESG disclosure requirements, there's none related to climate finance. So what is done is that, you know, these kind of information is gathered through, you know, organizations like CPI or, or through data organizations like Bloomberg. They collect different data that is made available. So, so this is how the current level, there is no such thing as auditing um, climate finance. It's all done through a voluntary framework, sort of voluntary understanding, common understanding of what climate finance is. Um, and is that a barrier to um, other sort of financial players thinking about investing in climate change when there isn't that same kind of uh, audit that you see, let's say, in financial instruments? Um, so uh, from my perspective, I would say yes, because even if we put together this information about where finance is going, we're still lacking a full picture in terms of, you know, all sort of climate finance flows. So, for example, some of the particular data gaps we see is, um, for example, domestic private finance. Um, we don't see a full picture in terms of domestic climate budget tagging done by governments. Um, so it, it's just a bit absurd to see that, you know, you ask any country, any government, like how much you spend on a, a telephone bill, they'll be able to tell you. But if you ask any government how much you spend on climate mitigation adaptation, there'll be very few countries who were able to tell, say that. And again, it's just going back to my point that we are not prioritizing mm. this issue enough um, at the national and government, you know, at all levels, basically. It is still a very niche um, topic if we really think, think things holistically. It's still one of the sort of issues, but it needs to be very much prioritized um, if we are serious about um, climate goals. And Arda has a question about, um, he talks about technologies like carbon capture, you know, could they they lack investor appeal due to long term returns? Are there any innovative investment structures that show promise in terms of bridging that gap? Because I think Baisa, you had that graph that shows that if we make that large investment now, it means returns in the future. Um, Baisa or Daniel, do you have any insights into this? You know, any innovative investment structures in this area? Daniel, would you like to take a first step? And I'm happy to contribute. Sure. Um, well, carbon capture as a, let's say as a, as a profile for an investment is, I wouldn't say it's 
materially different from from um, other uh, other types of uh, projects the only problem with it is that it's still seen as a relatively unproven uh, technology and with relatively unproven technologies like carbon capture even hydrogen as with you know most cases in the past you, you simply need a government or some sort of public finance uh, intervention to take some of that risk away um, and for 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 this some of the blended finance structures seem uh, to match perfectly uh, blended finance uh, includes all sort all sorts of interventions that use public resources to crowd in uh, private investment by changing the risk return uh, profile of that investment for the private side so you would imagine um, government or through development finance institutions or um, MDBs, um, development banks, they could put up a, a project preparation facility, they can do technical assistance, they can um, use guarantees, uh, first loss mechanisms. There are uh, many ways in which the public side, let's say using a little bit the public uh, uh, side could contribute to reducing or transferring the risk away um, for the private sector to feel more comfortable uh, to invest in in a technology that's not yet really proven at scale at least so by what you say in terms of blended finance it's having someone with an institution with good credit back almost being a guaranteeing uh, some part of that return and then giving private sector the uh, confidence to go in and adjusting that risk balance. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, we have one, one more question from uh, Debasis here. And Debasis asks, what about regulating the finance industry and making financial institutions invest in climate finance, maybe a percentage of profits or revenues, like a windfall tax. Would that, would that help at all? Man, I think, uh, I'm sure Daniel would um, add to this question as well, but um, going back to the point that it's more on the, um, not the supply side, but the demand side, um, we need to fix the market such that it is more attractive for the private sector to invest in because you know, for private sector, there are two things they're only interested in. So one is risk and return. Yeah, of course, we can talk about the ESG responsible investment considerations, but without the right risk matching their returns, it's it's without the right return matching the risk, it's just not going to happen. Um, this The other consideration is that governments cannot impose regulation or make markets such that they invest in certain things. It doesn't, you know, in the, in the free market economy that, that's just not something it's within the entire um, control of governments. Um, so the, the, the only sort of regulations that they can do is, yes, make the, the rules more simplified for financial um, industries to invest in um, climate mitigation adaptation activities. And then on the other hand, just really making sure that the national policies signal to the private sector such that in the long term, all investment is going to be um, climate um, relevant and climate aligned. So if you give that sense of um, um, policy signal, uh, it's, it's as you said, Conrad, it's going to increase the confidence of private sector 
to invest in that. As much as we'd like to say, like, you know, this percentage should go into this sector, I think that's useful to think in planning terms, but that's not something we probably can impose it on. Mm. I mean, I'm reminded every month uh, when I look at my energy bill that there's always this little line item here in the UK that goes to developing renewable energy sources. And that's, uh, I know many, there are people in, in the UK who are upset about that. But uh, when I look at it, it actually has gone into things like wind farms, renewable energy. Uh, and I guess what you're saying is that that works because there is this well-established kind of infrastructure and system to make sure it works. But in many parts of the world, you have to fix that infrastructure first before we think about the finance. Um, actually, Baisa, you have this slide here which shows where all this money is going to. Can you, it's quite a busy slide. Can you tell us um, briefly how we should look at this? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is a um, Sankey diagram, as we would like to call it, that Climate Policy Initiative. Um, so, yeah, 1.3 trillion US dollars in annual, annual flows. It's a huge, big number. But this diagram really helps you to, to understand what this one, 0.3 trillion in climate finance is. So from the left-hand side, we can see where the source of money is coming from. So all the blue um, nodes represent finance coming from public sector. So all the government-related um, 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 flows. And then the, the orange uh, side represents all the private finance, private sector activities. Um, and we also look into sort of how this money is raised through using what financial instruments. So understanding financial instruments is also important to sort of assess uh, where the, what kind of financial instruments is uh, going and why. Um, and we also look into sort of the breakdown of mitigation versus adaptation activities. Um, so it's really aligned with the, the Paris Agreement goal that I mentioned at the beginning of of the webinar. Um, and then we link it all the way down to different projects. So each of these 336 uh, billion in investments, it, it's all a representative of individual uh, projects, individual transactions that we um, then um, aggregate them to, to show a aggregate view on where finance is going where. Um, so it, it's, again, like a very useful overview of understanding who is financing what, where, to which countries, and, and to which climate solutions. Um, and some of the key sort of reflections from this slide is that we still need to see a lot more private finance going to climate mitigation adaptation activities. Um, and the key thing to consider is that public funding is scarce. Uh, we can't keep on continue funding climate action through scarce public resources. It's, it's just not sustainable. If we really think about scaling climate finance to five, six, seven trillion. Um, and, and one good example I'd like to give is that, you know, you know, households, individuals. So sometimes often we find ourselves very um, um not powered to take climate action, but in reality, we are actually a big part of this climate solution. So uh, we find that about 184 billion a year is spent by households 
So this money actually means investment in buying, choosing electric vehicles over um, IC normal cars or making insulation home improvements in your own house, uh, buying solar water heaters and, and all of that action is actually very, very meaningful um, from individual perspective. Um, yeah, and um, the other thing to note that, you know, multilateral climate funds, um, we see a lot of actions from multilateral development finance institutions, bilateral DFIs. Um, they're very crucial in the um, discussion of climate finance. You know, they're not the you know, entities that, that's going to save the world. They are the entities that will provide uh, suitable finance, so sort of cheaper finance, which needs to be then blended from private sector um, that can attract even more capital uh, to sort of the hard to invest in sectors or hard to invest technologies in regions. So that's that's how we need to think about um, scaling climate action. Yeah, and we have a question here, and I think maybe Daniel, you could if you could take this one. Hrithu um, asks, what kind of finances have been dominating the charge in climate finance? Uh, is it pension funds, institutional investments? So, Daniel, from your experience looking at Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, who are the non-government players who are in climate finance there? Thanks, uh, thanks, Conrad. Yeah, uh, interesting, uh, interesting question, and I'm think the, the the answer will be pretty disappointing. Um, apart from development finance institutions, which themselves fund themselves by by by, by issuing bonds, so you could say there's some layer of of, uh, of private finance behind it. Uh, you may have uh, institutional investors. Um, Financing a development finance institution, which has a, a very good credit rating, which then deploys capital in uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa for uh, for climate finance. But yeah, I mean, I have to say there's that the expectations have been have been really high over the last ten years from from private capital stepping in um, and contributing to, to some of the greatest challenges uh, globally. Um, there's been an action agenda, the Addis Ababa action agenda of the UN in 2015 that, that featured very prominently the, the, the expectation of, of, of private finance to step in. But if, for example, in 2021, if you look at um, the private finance mobilized for sustainable development through blended finance approaches, uh, was somewhere around 1% of what is needed globally. And, uh, you know, based on my, my, my research findings, this should not really be surprising. The, the challenge is, is, is monumental. Um, you cannot really expect for profit finance to deploy the capital of its, I don't know, depositors, uh, savers, uh, investors to projects that are too risky, right? Uh, they need viable projects and viable uh, uh, investment destinations. And for example, looking at renewables and looking at, uh, at Sub-Saharan Africa, um, there are some huge barriers to, to, to viability. 
And the most striking one, uh, particularly after the COVID uh, pandemic, is, is public debt. Governments around uh, Africa accumulated enormous amounts of debt as they struggled to respond to the, the, the pandemic. Uh, and many of them are either in or close to, to sovereign default. Um, none of the countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, maybe with one exception, one or two exceptions, uh, has an investment grade credit rating, which pretty much prevents any institutional investors from, uh, from investing. I mean, who's, who's going to be comfortable to bring capital into a country that, that is unable to pay its existing creditors, right? And this, this looks, uh, I mean, the landscape is similar if you look uh, uh, one layer below the utilities, which tend to be state-owned and which serve as the, 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 the buyers of, of, of power. Um, they are in, in, you know, in a pretty bad financial shape. They have massive debt. Their, their tariffs tend to be lower than their costs. Uh, they have large losses in their networks. So it's really hard to accept the idea of having them as counterparty when they, they, they have a difficult time to honor their, uh, their contracts even today. So I think to, for this to become believable, for this to become a real investment opportunity, there's a lot of uh, uh, need of coordinated policy, especially on debt, on, on the accumulated debt um, in many parts of the world, but particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa. If mm. this is solved and some of these structural problems uh, are solved, the interest becomes immediately uh, relevant. Everyone wants to deploy the capital in lucrative ways, right? Mm. Um, and the populations are growing, the economies are growing. Africa will become an investment destination, but it needs uh, uh, it needs help, and it needs uh, help, especially if, uh, uh, at the global level, on reducing its levels of debt. Yeah, and I guess that's a very difficult political sell, isn't it? Because um, people, firstly, people already feel bad about, or there's a barrier to people in developing developed worlds saying, "I need to pay for." climate change in the developing world. But actually, when you say it's to help them pay off debt, that becomes like a big mental hurdle to go. But as you mentioned, that may well be the first step uh, to unlock all this sort of capital. Um, there's this other question here from Anish. And Anish asks, there are funds that have underlying investment themes aligned with the achievement of the UN uh, sustainable development goals, especially clean energy, climate action, but they're not specifically impact investing funds. Uh, do these funds face challenges in measuring and quantifying the impact of their investments? Are there ways to address that kind of measurement? That's a very interesting question and something I will be prioritizing in my research this year, um, particularly. So we been very much focused on um, the dollar values of climate finance, rightly so, because we are very, you know, slow in terms of mobilizing climate finance. So that focus on scale is important. But again, the, the other question uh, naturally comes like whether they are achieving the um, intended imp outcome of, of um, you know, um, 
activities. So that's something we don't have like a common language on that. And that's, I think, something that we need to fix. But there are lots of different frameworks available. Um, and, and the issue now that we have is that they are a bit scattered. So um, is some sectors use their own organizational impact investing measure, uh, framework. And there are like others um, who have completely different lens because, you know, they have their own sort of um, internal um, processes in measuring investment. But um, there is an organization called Global Impact Investing Network. They have a very good framework and, and they work on um, standardizing and helping the impact investors to look through sort of a standardized lens on how to measure and quantify the impact of their investment. Uh, but again, I'd ju just like to clarify that this is not a very mainstream topic in, in climate finance at least, but that's something that needs to become mainstream um, in the coming years. Yeah, and then we've got another question here from someone, a student here at Judge Business School. So Isabel is on the Masters of Social, MST in Social Innovation. She's writing her dissertation about sustainable finance uh, to agriculture. And I don't know whether Daniel or Baisa, whether either one of you knows a bit about uh, land use is it called uh, land use, land use change and forestry kind of projects or financing? Uh, why is it not so, what, why is there not more investment in this area? Uh, yeah, um, so in according to our database, we see, you know, land use and land use change and forest related investment is, is, is a fraction. Um, there are like a few reasons. So firstly, yes, there are like not a lot of finances going there. But then the second thing is some of the investment that we see huge chunk of investment, for example, in the energy sector or transport sector, they are very capital intensive. So like to implement those projects in those sectors, it's it's super expensive. Um, so maybe com compared to um, the land use and land use change and forestry um, um, related projects. So um I know we're short in time, but uh, maybe um, I can send another report that CPI did, um, particularly mm -hmm. focusing on on this whole um, sector, including the agriculture food system sector. And we also did a comprehensive view in terms of how much finance is going and sort of where the key players are and, and happy to share it in the chat. Okay, thanks so much. Daniel, any thoughts about this area? Well, yes, I think some of the reasons are relatively intuitive. Um, if you think about energy or renewable energy, this is just a, a, a variant of an existing market. You have a very clear uh, good and there's a lot of demand for it. We have an, a, a market that works and you try to tilt it towards renewables instead of using fossil fuels, but you're just intervening in an existing market. It's the same for transport. We know what the car is and we just want to make it electric. Um, so there, there is an, a very clear and, and intuitive market. While this is not intuitive in, in the case of uh, land use change, it's really hard to structure projects to make them revenue generating and uh, to make them an investable opportunity, especially for the private sector. Not impossible, but it's hard. Okay. Well, Thank you so much, Baisa and Daniel, for, for your insights. Um, I think, you know, I've learned, I think the big takeaway for me is that 
uh, as you say, it's not about the finance aspects, but it's about the entire infrastructure in terms of deploying the capital and actually making sure that uh, risk returns uh, equations are right for investors. And in that kind of sense, it's the same as any kind of investment project, not just in terms of climate finance. And if anything else, that makes the challenge even more difficult because these are very interconnected kind of issues. Uh, I don't know whether that's an optimistic or a pessimistic note to, <laughs> to end on, but I guess it's the realistic and pragmatic view. So well, thank you so much, Baisa and Daniel. And thank you for our viewers. I know we didn't get through all the questions, uh, but I will be putting up some, I think Baisa shared with me some of the research that she's done. I'll put that on the, the uh, LinkedIn comments. And if you like the show, please repost it on your social network. The balance sheet will be back next Friday, the uh, 23rd of February. Uh, same time, we will be having Professor Jennifer Howard Grenville speaking about the future of work. So till then, stay well and see you next time.